I'm sure uh, most of you have heard of people who have experienced a fall from grace. Usually that happens in a public format. You know, the celebrity said something foolish, uh, the media then ran with it, and they never quite recovered from it. The athlete usually uh, in this situation is found to have used some substance that has enhanced their performance and earning then stolen medals and, and records and victories. And he lied about it, and the truth came out and became a punchline. And if you heard this quote, I, I, have been on my, I, I have been on my deathbed. I'm not stupid. I can emphatically say I'm not on drugs. We've seen those dramatic plunges, these falls from grace. That was Lance Armstrong for years denying it, once, once known as the world's best cyclist, was known as a hero to many, a fighter, an icon. He beat cancer and amazed us time and time again, winning the Tour de France and, and winning the Tour de France and winning the Tour de France. And now he'll go down as one of the biggest liars in all of sports. Seven-time champ has been stripped of all his titles, admitting now that he, he did take those drugs, even lost all the endorsements that he had. He, he no longer is what he once was. He, he fell. To experience a fall from grace is to undergo a great loss of prestige, a, a loss of reputation. It has become an object of scorn and derision. There's been many, in fact, as I looked last night, last 10 years, and, and just in the realm of sports have experienced this type of failure. Some have recovered, some have not. I'm a golf fan, and I cheered for Tiger Woods for years. Fall from grace because of sin, and he's not recovered. This morning, we're going to cover someone known in Scripture who had an epic failure. He made an incredible fall, and it may seem that he would never recover from the sin. And We're going to continue on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 12 through 27. So as you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I read John chapter 18, looking at verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Ananias, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Ias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This morning, I very simply only have two points that I want to cover, real simple. First is the scene. Where are we at? The scene of what's happening here. And second one, the longer point is the denial, the denial of Peter. So before I I, I jump into that, would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us, that you would speak this morning, that we would hear you from your word, and that we would come away this morning changed by hearing your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So the scene, last week we went through verses one through 11 and led up from the prayer and the garden to the arrest, and now we come to Verse 12, and John describes the scene following all that had happened, the conversation with the soldiers. John informs us that Jesus was bound and led away, and he's brought before the high priest, Ananias. This will be the first person Jesus, Jesus would stand before. And as they wait their, make their way to the house, it's, it's only Peter and John that are, that are trailing after with Jesus. And John goes in, and, and Peter stays outside, warming himself by the fire. And Jesus is led to Ananias. John MacArthur writes about him in this way. He says, Ananias was a proud, ambitious, and notoriously greedy man. Evidently, a significant source of his income came from the concessions in the temple. He'd received a share of his proceeds from the sale of sacrificial animals. Ananias also profited from the fees the money changers charged to exchange foreign currency into Jewish money that alone could be used to pay the temple tax. Ananias had a special hatred for Jesus, who had once, or not once, but twice, disrupted his business operations by cleaning the temple. We covered that in John 2, at least one of them. So as you, as you read, you, you can understand Lisa Nias coming into this. He's, he, 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 he wants to be involved in this. He, he, he's more than willing to take part of this trial at night. And it appears that there's an, it's an irregular hearing. Since legal protocols were overlooked, probably intending to allow... Caiaphas to have enough time to assemble his false witnesses, enough time to to gather the full Sanhedrin for a nighttime trial. And it seems as though the the purpose of Ananias was was to seek some ground to to accuse Jesus of a a rabble-rousing. He's he's trying to corner Jesus. He, He questions Jesus just like the world would. He was far more interested in the success of Jesus and the large following that he was gathering than the truth of what he spoke. He wasn't so much interested in that. And Jesus was very careful in his response to him, not to bring up discussions there, but to ask. And as for his teaching, Jesus pointed out to the witnesses, they would be easy to find because his preaching was heard by large crowds for three years of his ministry. And and during this time, his his doctrine had not yet been refuted by the experts of the law. And what Jesus does next is to demand to be tried correctly under the law. One commentator wrote, Jewish law did not permit the direct questioning of the accused, but required a conviction to result from the testimony of eyewitnesses. And Jesus knows this and keeps his composure after he's struck by one of the officers. And he replies, if if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. 
But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And at this point, you know, Ananias realizes that there's no, there's no hope here. This is not going to go anywhere. And so he sends him to Caiaphas. You know, John is, is very brief in his recounting of what happens, of his treatment of Jesus before Ananias. Simply put, the, the hearings were illegal. And the breaches of Jewish legal proceedings were, were too numerous to count. But I walk through, and with the help of commentaries, there's a few I'm going to bring to your attention. Uh, first, Jesus was arrested without any proper charges, based upon a witness that was bribed. And Jesus was tried at night, where the law required it and needed to happen during the daylight for, for capital offenses, for capital cases. And their case was held the day before a feast, which was another no-no. There was no testimony in favor of the accused, which was even sought or permitted at that time. And Jesus was convicted by a unanimous vote, which the le Jewish legal rules considered evidence of a biased court. All of these, and there's just a few, were gross violations of the law. And so William Hendrickson, in his commentary, correctly says, this is in reality no trial at all, it's murder. Jesus knows this. He's not shocked by this. You know, Ananias probably believed himself to be a neutral party. At least he talked himself into this. But that's not true. You know, he, he, he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes all that he had lost because of Jesus. And we need to realize this morning that no one is neutral when it comes to Jesus. No matter what your friends say to you, they're not neutral. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. We don't like to hear that. Neither do our unsaved neighbors or friends. You're either with Jesus, your obedience to him and his word, or you're, you're against him. And in that way, you're just like Ananias. And the truth will be found out. This trial of Jesus falls directly in the middle of the passage. That's why I jumped in here first, because I believe the focus of what John is wanting to relate in just these, these short verses is really about what happens to Peter. So that's the second point, is the denial of Peter. And I want to spend the rest of our time here this morning on this. The denial of Peter. So Jesus is arrested and bound and taken away. And, and while Jesus is inside the high priest's house for the trial of his earthly life, Peter is outside in the court. And he's also facing the trial of his life. And before we look at the denials of Peter, we need to look back. And if we're to understand the whole story of how Peter's denial comes, we need to see where Jesus first identifies for Peter that this will happen. If you remember in John chapter 13, following the introduction of the Lord's Supper, Jesus responds to Peter's question. Turn back with me to John chapter 13. In verse 36, this is after Jesus relaying what's going to happen, foretelling of his death. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And Peter believed that he would follow Jesus to the end, unwavering. But Jesus shares with him the issues that are lurking inside of his heart. 
and that his faith will be tested. You know, in Luke's gospel, turn back, we're gonna get you moving here in the, in the gospels here. So turn to Luke's gospel, chapter 22, because Luke has some details here, much of the same of what happened, but a different vantage point for Luke as he's hearing this and, and making note. Luke chapter 22 because it gives us some, some added details of what was transpiring, what would Jesus was communicating to Peter at this time. Luke chapter 22, look at verse 31 through 34. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. Well, what does Luke say that Satan intends to do with Peter? You know, the answer comes in the next sentence, actually, of what, what it is, where Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan plans to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus plans to keep Peter's faith from, from failing, from falling. So sifting like wheat has to do with his faith. You guys know what a, a sift, a sieve is, right? I had to look that up just to make sure I get a picture in my mind. Google's great for that. But I can imagine the picture now with Satan here. Satan has a big uh, sieve with, with jagged edged wires woven together, which forms a type of mesh that only lets faithless men and women fall through. And what he intends to do is throw people into this and shake them. And gyrate them around the jagged mesh so that they're torn and they're weak and they're desperate and, and the faithless fall through because they don't have enough faith to stay, to believe. And faithless people now, faith cannot fall through the mesh. It's the wrong shape. Faithful people stay and continue with God. Faithless people fall in and worship with Satan. And the, the violent shaking required for sifting is very unsettling and, and often quite painful. But it's necessary. And Peter would learn this. You know, that's just here, but later, he, he'd teach about it later. You know, well, you want to learn about Peter, just go to First and Second Peter. You can learn about what God did through his life. And he writes about it, First Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter understood this. And this trial of Peter's faith must have shaped him incredibly. So how did, how did Peter fail so huge? Why did he deny Jesus? What, what led up to the scene outside of the, in the courtyard? And it got me thinking on that. And thanks to, to a number of commentaries, one in particular, John MacArthur, in, in a book that he'd written, I have four reasons from the gospel that would point us to reasons why. And so I have borrowed from him in this regard. 
The first reason why he failed so greatly is he boasted in the wrong thing. Peter boasted in the wrong thing. He was boasting in himself. He says in those accounts what I read, I will lay down my life for you. This is what he said. He's boasting in something, right? But he's boasting in himself, the wrong things. And you may be sitting here this morning thinking that boasting is a wrong thing to do as a Christian, that we shouldn't boast. But that's not true. When you boast in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian. You are saying that you're a new creation, that the old has passed away. You as informer is gone. Behold, the new has come. You're boasting in him. You're not boasting in yourself. And Paul, in a lot of his writings, talks a lot about boasting. And he always centers it back on Christ. He's displaying for his readers that he's a, a new person, a new creation. But what is boasting? What, what does it even mean? Uh, a boast originally was part of warfare. It was a way in which the leader would gather their troops together before heading to war. You know, how do you get your soldiers ready for war? There's some quotes that you can find throughout the Old Testament of boasting. Exodus 15 with the Song of Moses as he leads the people out of Egypt. You can read through that. And 1 Kings uh, 20, it says, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Simple point, right? Log that one away. That's a good one. Uh, second, or 1 Samuel 2 with Hannah. My heart boasts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. So, so boasting is not a bad thing as long as you're boasting in the right thing. You know, you, most of you probably know the movie Braveheart, right? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Braveheart. William Wallace. You know, I, I, my mind went to that as he prepares his men for war. He's riding his horse back in front of the men and they're not sure if they're gonna go to war and, and I'm not gonna do this in a Scottish accent, sorry. But I'll read what he says. I, the fight you may die, run and you'll live at least for a while and dying in your beds many years from now would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our... Oh, come on, that was really pathetic. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? They'll never take our... Oh, I'm glad none of you are in charge of an army. Freedom, right? He's boasting on, on this. You know, it's a, it's a charge ready to go to war. You know, even when he's dying, I'm not gonna, I mean, I could spend all the time there, but you know, when, when William Moss is dying, you know, and they're, oh, this prisoner wants to speak, this long drawn out scene you're just kind of waiting for. And what does he yell out? Come on. The boast for them, you know, the, the, what they needed to do for war. And Peter was about to prepare for a war that he'd never seen. And he needed to boast in something, and he chose badly. He chose himself. You know, Peter had this issue throughout the Gospels. If you remember in Matthew 16, where Jesus asked the disciples, whom do people say that I am? And Peter responds. Do you, do you remember what he says? Matthew 16, he says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this from, from here. It wasn't you, it wasn't your friends. No, my father who is in heaven revealed it to you. He boasts not in himself, he boasts not in others, he boasts in God. 
And so Peter responds rightly, and God revealed to him who Jesus was. But soon as Jesus then launches into the next few verses of what must come next, that he's going to suffer through the chief priests, that he's going to suffer through the scribes, and he's going to be killed, and yet he will rise the third day. Jesus is talking about the cross. Again, that Peter should boast in what God is going to do. And how does Peter respond? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. He rebukes him. He rebukes God. And Jesus replies to him, get get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me if you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter needs to understand the cross. Now, he doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because if you get the cross wrong, you're in the grip of Satan. If you think lightly of the cross, if you think the cross is of no significance, it's of no importance, then you are Satan's missionary. You're not God's. Folks, this is serious. This is what he's saying here. Peter boasts in himself. He needs to learn to boast in Jesus, in the cross, in God, and what he does. He needs to boast in that and not in himself. Peter should have listened more than he spoke. He has two ears and one mouth for a reason. And that's the same for us. His boasting in himself only inflamed his carnal pride, and pride was Peter's greatest problem. We realize, though, and we can see this through the rest of Scripture, it wasn't true for his entire life. Peter matured in the faith and learned to boast in the cross of Christ and not boast in himself. So first, he, he boasted in the wrong thing. Second, he prayed too little. If you remember when Jesus entered the garden that night, he deliberately took with him Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden when he would go and pray to the Father. And if you remember last week, we looked at the passages and the other gospel accounts of how Jesus repeatedly came back to those men to find them asleep, unable to pray. And do you remember the reason Jesus charged them to pray with him? He says that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew that they would be tempted to steer away from God in the upcoming hours. And so he implores them to continue to pray. And they continue to sleep. This has weighed heavily on my mind this week. And I believe that most of the problems and failures that we have and our life are in direct relation to our prayerlessness. We just don't pray. We'd rather sleep. We choose not to pray. And Peter's example in in John 18, as you turn back to that, shows us the truth of what happens when we fail to pray. Jesus knew the seriousness of what's going to happen. And he charges him and the men to pray so that they would not be tempted to sin. And Peter doesn't pray. Peter sins. Peter chose to sleep rather than pray. And how many times has Jesus come back to the men and find that they're sleeping? Christ's agony was more intense than anything that we've ever seen. Can you imagine, you know, 
You know you need to pray, but you're overwhelmed. You just choose to sleep. You're, you're, you're weak in that moment. And you imagine being startled awake again by Jesus coming to say, man, you need to pray. And you can see the blood dripping down his face, but no wound. The agony of Christ in the garden, and yet it doesn't affect them. And how often do we take the easy path and neglect the work of prayer? You know, we read from John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. It's all one evening, all the trauma that these men had had gone through, the exhausting night, I'm sure. And Jesus knows that this weight would have been on them. And that's why he says, pray. And we, we sometimes think, no, I need to sleep. Jesus says, no, pray so you won't fall into temptation. Peter failed because Peter prayed too little. Third, Peter acted without thinking. You know, things are not going well for Peter by this time. He's he's awoken now, and and he can hear, I'm sure, the the soldiers coming into the garden, the betrayers coming, and he's, he's already boasting himself, and he's not praying he, he's, he's tired. He's just a hot mess at this point. And his heart is just stoked with pride and self-sufficiency. He's not controlled by God. He's only controlled by his own desires. And what does he do when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus? He lashes out and he strikes his servant. He cuts off his ear. He acts without thinking. If he only had obeyed God, if he had followed Jesus, prayed, walking in obedience, just This might not have happened. Peter always seemed to think that he knew better. He acted swiftly without counting the cost. And if we were to spend some time this week and just go back into the Gospels and count how many times Jesus foretells of his death, how many times he he lays out for them what's going to happen. But Peter's not remembering this. He's not walking with his God. He's acting and he's not thinking. And how many times has this happened to us? We've been boasting in ourselves, in our might, in our knowledge of a situation, and we've been not, not been praying. We've been relying on ourselves for sufficiency, and, and then we act without thinking. We forget the gospel. All the steps leading up to that decision we're wrong. We weren't faithful to him in all those little things. And we act in ways that are not obedient to his will. So that's the third thing. The fourth is that Peter followed too far away. He followed too far away. You know, his final step towards the denial was that he followed Christ at a distance. He stayed far enough away so that he was not suspected to be one of Christ's followers. John writes, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was not known the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, this is John, by the way, writing, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. He's, at this point, scared of the servant girl. 
shaking his boots when the servant girl questions him. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal file because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter was also with them. Jump down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself so they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? You know, even their question is not one to, to nail him. It's a, it's a, it's a curiosity. Are, are you, I, I, Peter denies it. Says, I'm not one of them. Verse 26, and one of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. I'm sure he heard already. Malchus lost his ear and then God, Jesus, healed it. Did you hear about this? News is traveling. It says to him, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Peter's obviously fearful of what was transpiring. But you can see how things compounded for Peter, right? You know, what if Peter had chosen not to boast in himself, but in Christ? What if he had believed Jesus about the cross? What if he believed about his death? What if he believed about the resurrection? What if Peter had obeyed Jesus and prayed in the garden? What if he persevered through the exhaustion, the hold, the ropes, and the connection to the Father? What if Peter had thought through, remembered the words that Jesus had spoken for the last three years and chose to act on what was true? What if? Instead, Peter pulls back. You know, he isolates himself. And and no situation is more spiritually dangerous for a believer than a circumstance where you have the temptation to conceal your relationship with Christ. And when this happens, the temptation to act like a non-Christian grows. Now, furthermore, he pulls himself back from the, the other 10. He isolates himself. You know, Peter was warned by Jesus earlier that Satan would sift him. And now it's coming to fruition. And Satan's desire is to destroy the faith of Peter. And this is most certainly the goal today. This is Satan's goal today for the the church. It is unimportant to Satan whether you are healthy or sick or rich or poor or liked or disliked. He wants to sift out your faith. If he can do anything by suffering, he'll try that. If he can do anything by wealth, he'll move to that. He'd be more than happy to make you rich, to sift out your faith. He'd be more than happy to make you popular, to sift out your faith. You know, Jesus pictures Satan for us as a farmer shaking Christians in a sieve, trying to tear them apart from their faith. He cannot steal them away from the Father, but he can dissuade them from following Jesus closely. He can cause us as as believers to just fall far enough away that we're of no effect to Jesus Christ and to the gospel and to the kingdom advancing, that we just exist. And that's Satan's goal today. You know, some, some 30 years later, Peter wrote for us in 1 Peter 5. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, Peter understood this. He learned 
from what Jesus taught. Peter pictures Satan as a lion who can devour anything but faith. Peter knew suffering. He experienced suffering. He would die for his faith. And you need to realize, friends, that Satan is seeking out whom he can sift, whom he can devour. And it it is the only ones who lack faith, who will, who will fall through and who will be eaten up. Well, what do you do when you betray Jesus? You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you read this and you think, I have betrayed him. What do you do? Lots of people say that they want to follow Jesus. That's why there's so many here this morning. But the reasons why you want to follow Jesus will become more clear in the hard times of life. When you have the option to choose another path other than Jesus. Because it's easy to follow Jesus when things are going well. Everyone here this morning would agree with that statement, I think. No opposition, no, no pain, no struggle, it's easy. But when you're not getting what you desire out of life, will you still follow God? When it looks like following him will bring benefit, we stay close. But when those benefits flee, do we flee too? You know, in the end, it boils down to this. Do I love God or do I love the things that God gives me? Do I love the things that God does for me? If you've chosen to believe the lie that Jesus is not quite enough, you've succumbed to the subtle way of betrayal of him. You have betrayed him. And it's easy to make a big life decision on Sunday in the moment and the, and the emotion of worship and then leave and go back to the workplace, school, or your neighborhood and just walk away. You know, there's, there's two disciples that betrayed Jesus in John chapter 18. But only one has gone down in history as the ultimate villain. There's only one who fell from grace and never recovered. And the reason? Well, they both made two distinct decisions following the denial and following the betrayal of Jesus. You know, we don't have the the details of what happened next in John's gospel for Judas, but in Matthew's gospel, he writes this. Listen, Matthew 27, 3 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is it to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went away and hanged himself. It was too late for Judas. He changed his mind about the money, but nothing else changed. He may have even shed tears like Peter does. He most certainly felt guilt. He had regretted what he had done, but that was it. We never see him ask for forgiveness or turn to live for God. And friends, if that had happened, we would have heard about in the Gospels. They would have highlighted that. But all Judas felt was remorse. And that sent him to the point of ending his life. Peter, on the other hand, repented. It says in the other Gospel accounts, he wept 
bitter tears for his sins. It wasn't just crying. It was bitter tears over his sin. He was changed, and he became courageous for Jesus. He learned to boast in the cross and not himself. After the crucifixion, he joined the other disciples for prayer, and he was the, the first disciple, if you remember, to, to enter the tomb. He, he raced faster than anyone else to get there. And after the resurrection of Christ, we read in John 21, and I can't wait to get there, uh, of, of Jesus restoring Peter, following this, and received forgiveness, and he was reconciled. But these two, Judas and Peter, respond to guilt differently. You know, like the religious leaders of the day, you can blame the issues on other people instead of dealing with your own issues. Like Judas, you can try to make up for your mistakes, like trying to give the money back to the leaders. But the problem is that you can't unring a bell. You can't undo your sins. You can stew. You can just dwell on what you've done and the guilt. And you allow it to eat you alive just as Judas does. Well, the last thing you can do is repent. You repent. Peter chooses this. You, you bring your sin before God and ask for mercy and forgiveness and put things in place that will help you change the way that you live. And it's in this last choice that brings life. It leads to life because the one who loved the betrayer even as he betrayed him, who looked at the denier even as he was denying him, he's the one who went to the cross and, and died the death for a guilty man. And we don't see it in John's gospel, but this, this got me this week as I'm thinking through this. Jesus knows that Peter is denying him and he still goes to the cross and dies for him. Jesus loved Peter enough to die for him. And it's our savior too. Jesus loved Judas. And in the middle of the trial, Jesus Excuse me, Jesus loved Peter is what I wanted to say. In the middle of the trial, as Jesus stands before Ananias, he, he looks over and hears the rooster cry. And in the other gospel account on Luke, gives details there of what happens. It says in Luke 22, verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, behold, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You know, I, I thought about that. If I had a friend that I'd warned over and over again that he was going to fail me in my greatest hour of my greatest need, and, and then that friend began to talk all sorts of trash about how he was going to be there. He's, I got your back. And he boasted over and over of the power that he had to follow and that he would do anything for me, that he would go to any length for me and then the friend fails me in which the way I said he would, just as I predicted, I would give him a look too. It'd probably be a sinful look. But that's not what Peter needed in that moment. That's not what the look that Jesus gave Peter. Peter most definitely needed to repent. But Peter needed forgiveness. 
If he was going to move forward and not die in his guilt and shame like Judas, he needed forgiveness. He needed his guilt to be dealt with. You know, it's not a question of whether he did anything wrong. That was clear. It, it was a question of how can he now move forward? And, and friends, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you know that is what you need today. We're all guilty of trying to use God for our own agenda, for our own desires. We obey him when we want something. We don't truly live for him as much as we should. We don't pray as we should. We're not as faithful as we should. And the question for us this morning is not, are we guilty? We know that we are. The question is, what do we do with that guilt? Do we seek to shift it? Do we ignore it? Are we wanting to work it off? Are we trying to carry it on our back until it'll eventually just crush us? The only way to deal with guilt is to confess our sin to God and seek his forgiveness. And there's no other option, friends. You know, do you realize this morning that Jesus died for you on the cross to take away the guilt of your sins? He took Peter sinned upon himself. And one of his closest disciples, Peter was one of the three, one of the, the inner circle with Jesus, one of his closest disciples within a few hours earlier denies him and Jesus goes to the cross and dies for him. Jesus gives up his life in order to save his cowardly friend. You know, this should encourage us. Jesus loves you as much as he loved Peter. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you will continue to, to bear that guilt upon yourself. You're going to continue to try to, to either work it off or, or carry it. And friends, it, you, you can't do it. You're not made to do it. It will crush you. You need a savior to take it away. Jesus is a friend that will never betray you. He is a friend that will never abandon you. Jesus will never deny you. He is a friend that takes your guilt and deals with it and makes you new in the sight of God. He makes you new in a way that and God looks at you as, as if you never sinned. That's the kind of friend that you need. That's the kind of friend I need. And in Jesus, we have this friend. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the, the conviction of your word to my heart and my soul. And I thank you for sending Jesus to live among us, to live for us. I thank you for his, his active obedience in this world to show us and his obedience to go to the cross for us. And God, even this morning, maybe you have brought to our minds the, the guilt that we are carrying that we're trying to deal with. God, I pray for my friends here this morning that, 
are bearing this guilt and have no relationship with you, I pray that they will, they will release it to you. They will confess their sin. They'll acknowledge their denial of you. God, you promised to save them. I pray that today would be the day that they would be made new, that they would follow you. And God, I pray for others in our church that are walking with you and yet have had situations and circumstances and choices in life in which they have sinned. And now they bear that guilt. And instead of confessing it to you, God, they continue to to walk around with it. May we rest in the gospel. May we believe it again this morning that you not only saved us once for all eternity to to spend with you, but you continue to, to save us day in and day out, reminding us of the gospel that we would center and rest in that. May we confess our sins to you, seek forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration so that we can serve you with the rest of our lives. God, may we be faithful to you. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.